Today, I would like to attempt to teach the whole book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Now, um, the thing is with wisdom literature is that it's, it's supposed to be treated like a, a concert. It's supposed to be tr- taken all together like surround sound. You won't really be wise unless you take all of it together because um, each book has a different aspect of wisdom. If you take one book alone, you're not getting the full picture. For example, Proverbs. Proverbs is more of a straight-laced, straightforward, more fundamental view of wisdom. We learned about this last week. And it is true, the book of Proverbs is true only when you apply it rightly and in the right situations. It gives wisdom to a straight with almost no nuance at all. The book of Job takes a way more nuanced approach to wisdom and tries on the premise of Proverbs. So Proverbs says things like the righteous flourish and the wicked suffer. And, it, and Job tries this premise on and proves it to be wrong. But what we learned from that book, we studied a few weeks ago, is that there's more going on than what we know. And we have to trust Yahweh in this very complex world. Ecclesiastes is just crazy. This book is crazy. It's all about this complex and insanely complex crazy world. And it's super fun because it's like a nihilist got a hold of a book in the Bible and just scribbled all over it in the middle of the Bible. Um, It just asks all these questions. It questions everything. Um, This is like one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. It's just such a fun book to read. Now, a little disclaimer. Today, I'll be teaching you my interpretive take on and reading of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom literature is very tricky to interpret, so you might agree with me or you might not agree with me. Um, Either way, I think this book will resonate with every single person in this room. Um, The way the teacher sees the world uh, is the experience of everyone. Uh, Herman Melville, in his book Moby Dick, said, the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes. And so it's my hope today to show you how a book about meaninglessness can be so meaningful and how this book can help us to find meaning and purpose in our own lives. So Ecclesiastes, let me just read the first three verses. He sums up the entire book here. Chapter one, verse one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And everyone said amen. Okay, so let's, let's um, <laughs> this book's so fun. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would sit this morning in this book in its purpose, in its, its, its reasoning, in its view of life that we would not jump ahead too quickly, that we'd stay here, even though it's uncomfortable at times, even though it might test and push against things that we might think we believe about progress and technology and just how fun San Francisco is, that it would push against all those things and we'd be uncomfortable for a while and be okay with that. And I pray ultimately you'd lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, through this, this, this book, and that we would see light at the end. Um, So Jesus, I pray that you would be that light, and I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. I submit all of my capacities to you, and um, I pray that uh, today that you would would use me. Um, Anoint me, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two characters in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, The first character is the author, and the second character is the teacher. The author is, uh, basically you hear the author in the opening words 
and then the conclusion where he weighs in on the whole matter. Um, So the author compiled the book and then uh, gives an introduction in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and then at the end has the closing argument or the closing conclusion of the book. The second character is the teacher. He is the very middle of the book who has the bulk of the book and its message comes from the teacher. So if you look at here on the screen, this is how the book is broken up. So you have the author, uh, 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Then you have the teacher from verse 2, chapter 1, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8. And then the author concludes in chapter 12, verses uh, 9 through 14. This is how the book is broken up. So what we're going to hear for the most part of this book is the, quote, teacher. The author allows the teacher to give us a hard lesson in reality. And we would be wise, this is what wisdom literature is for, and we would be wise to listen to his teaching. And so what is the teacher's teaching? What is his teaching? And this is his teaching. Hevel, hevel, hevel. The word hevel there is um, translated in NIV as meaningless. Um, If you have like ESV or some other translation, it might be translated vanity. His conclusion, his teaching is that the whole world is hevel. This is used 38 times in this small book. The teacher is saying that everything, every pursuit, every pleasure, every accomplishment, every season in life, everything you work for, everything that happens to you in this life is utterly meaningless. He wants to show you and me that life in this world is absolutely meaningless. Now, first question, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why is this right in the middle of the Bible? Peter Kreft, a a professor of philosophy at Boston College, I've quoted in the book of Job, I think that he's probably the the best um, person I've ever read on the book of Ecclesiastes. He's a philosopher, and Ecclesiastes is a philosophical book, and he just breaks it down beautifully. He says that this is the first pre-modern book to answer the question of philosophy, what is the meaning of life, by saying... There is no meaning in life. Peter Kreft saying, this is the first pre-modern philosopher to do that, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Peter Kreft says that Ecclesiastes is the book that we most need as modern people to listen to. He says this, Ecclesiastes is the one book in the Bible that modern man needs most to read, for it is lesson one, and the rest of the Bible is lesson two. And modernity does not heed lesson two because it does not heed lesson one. That is profound. Lesson one, life is meaningless. Lesson one, you cannot find ultimate meaning in any of the major pursuits in this life. You can try, but it's an exercise in futility. That's lesson one. And until you understand that, until you hear it from someone who's been there, who's tried it all on and lived to tell us about it, that would be called listening to the wise person, by the way, or you've experienced it yourself, you cannot move on to the rest of the message of the Bible, which is the hope. This is lesson one. Peter Kreft actually says whenever he teaches the Bible in whole, he always starts with Ecclesiastes. I wish I would have read that in January. That would have been a lot better. He's like, I always start here. Because for the modern person, I mean, in a a world before the fall, Genesis 1 is where you would want to start. But in this world, this is where you start. This is where you start because this is what everyone is looking for is meaning. So what does the teacher mean? 
when he says that life is meaningless or life is vanity. When he looks at life, when he tries life on, when he does everything in life, what, what does he mean that life is meaningless? Um, the word meaningless doesn't really capture the Hebrew word hevel. The Hebrew word hevel is the word, um, it's like a vapor or smoke um, or a, a, a mirage. or hol- I would think they would use the word hologram if they had such a thing then. It's like, it looks like something. I want to go towards it. And, and once I get this thing that looks like a thing, I go towards it and it's nothing. It means you go for something you thought was there or you thought had weight or had meaning, but it turned out to be of no real substance at all. It wasn't solid and it wasn't really real. That's what the word hevel means. It's like it looks like something and I go for it and I actually spend a lot of energy trying to get it and once I get it, it's like vaporous. It's like, oh, I I went to go hug it and it's gone. It's not really there. So pleasure and money and wisdom and sex and traveling and you think subconsciously when you go after these things, if I get this thing, then I will get life and it'll get meaning to my life and then you get it, you get it. You get sex and pleasure and money and wisdom and you travel the world and you do the thing and at the end you, still, you come back to your, you know, your creepy apartment and it, it's Hevel. <laughs> like, wh- Hevel. I've been there. I, 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 I grammed it. It's, it's gone now. And it's, I thought it was the thing, but it's not the thing. And, it, and it's a mirage or it's a hologram. It's Hevel. And this is his conclusion. Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Hevel Hevel, says the teacher, utterly hevel, everything is hevel. I've gone after everything and it's meaningless. Is anyone depressed yet? Is anyone depressed yet? Now, why does he say that? Why does he say this and how does he support his argument? Anyone can say that, oh, life is meaningless. How does he, why does he say that and, and how does he actually support his argument? The book of Ecclesiastes seems, seems to ramble. He kind of moves from one subject to the next. He goes in and out of things. He, he will just start saying meaningless, meaningless, and then go into something that sounds meaningful, and then he's like, oh, there's meaning here, but it's all meaningless. Um, it, it embodies, this, this, this book actually embodies its own message. What he's saying is that life rambles to nowhere. My book rambles to nowhere, and this book will do the same thing. Life does it, and my book will do it. Nevertheless, Ecclesiastes has a very logical argument. And he's arguing something very philosophically. And this is, this, here's his argument, or here his, is the author's, or sorry, the teacher's philosophy of life. And there's three words to understand to understand his philosophy. Uh, the first word is meaningless, um, hevel. That word means vapor, smoke, hologram, something like that. So that's the first word. He uses that word over and over and over again. The second word that's important to understand to understand this book is toil. Some of your translations use the word work. And what he means by toil is our attempts to find meaning and purpose. Our work at finding meaning. Some of you work at your jobs and you hope that your jobs help you find meaning. Some of you go after relationships and that's how you find meaning. Some of you look to a sexual identity and that's how you find meaning. Some of you look to a even in this room, a cold religion, and that's how you find meaning. It's your, toil is your work to try to find meaning. So that's the word toil. That's the word he uses over and over again. The third word that you need to understand to understand Ecclesiastes is under the sun. And what he means by under the sun is our life on earth. Our life in this earth, on this earth, under the sun. 
Now, if you're thinking, well, there's a simple solution to that, get off of this earth. And it's so funny. I mean, I think that movie Gravity a couple years ago explored this theme. Like, all we have to do is get off of Earth. And I don't know if that is the answer. I guarantee you, if they started making commercial space travel and you landed on the moon, the first thing that you would do is do like an astronaut selfie with the Earth in the back. Every one of you would do this. You know it to be true. Like, I got off of Earth and I just want myself with Earth in the back on, on my feet. That's all I want in life. We, you can't get off this earth. You're, it's, you're from the dust. Like, this is in us. We live life under the, on the earth even if we get off this earth. Now, I think, this is my interpretation, I think the, uh, the, the, the teacher does have an understanding of God. He references God in this book a lot, but it's a distant God. I think, I believe, that the teacher's view of God is a naturalist's view of God, more like Mother Nature than Yahweh that we find in the rest of the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes' God is a naturalist's distant, cold God. I think you can prove that by reading the actual book in its entirety. You will see that it's a naturalist's cold, distant God. Um, You are in heaven, and I am on earth. Let my words be few. There's a distance there. There's, There's a bridge that I can't a gap I can't bridge, that sort of thing. So this is his argument. So that's, those are the words. Now here's his argument. His whole book is like this. Follow this, this, this logical argument here that he, that he puts forth. He says this, all toil is under the sun. All our attempts to find meaning and purpose happen on this earth. Proposition two, all under the sun is meaningless. Therefore, conclusion, all toil is meaningless. So he says, everything that you do to find meaning, you do that on this earth. And everything on this earth is hevel. Therefore, all of your attempts to find meaning is meaningless. That's his his argument in the book. That's like an airtight argument in this book. It's like everything that you try to do under the sun on this earth to find meaning will in the end prove itself to be meaningless because you will die, and you will leave your inheritance to someone stupid. <laughs> he says that literally. His argument, this, that's his argument, but the way he proves it is by living through it, by going through it and trying everything that there is under the sun to find meaning. He tests his own thesis. He actually tries it on. Look at verse uh, 12 in chapter one. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. This means that he had enough resources and time to do this. He says, and this is why I really believe he, he thinks God is this distant, cold God. He says, what a heavy burden God has placed on mankind. What he's saying there is that God would place us on this world alone, groping to find meaning. What a heavy thing. That this distant, cold God would place us, or Mother Nature would place us on this earth and says, hey, figure it out, have fun with that. What? That's, that's, a heavy, oh, that's a heavy burden. And he's right. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. The teacher does not merely argue. This teacher experiments. He tries it all on. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said to myself, come on now. 
I will test you with pleasure. So he's now he's testing his thesis. He's like, okay, this meaningless, I'm going to try everything that people try to find meaning. I will try pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaninglessness, meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine. Who hasn't done that? And embraced folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he's saying the whole time, as I was drinking and as I was drinking in pleasure, the whole time I'm trying to find out the meaning of life. So I just didn't do it just to escape life. I actually do it to find life. I cheered myself with wine, embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. And this is the conclusion. I wanted, or here's his purpose. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens or under the sun during the few days of their lives. I tried it all because I wanted to see what was actually good for us to invest our time into. What should we be doing under the sun during this very few days of our lives? So what does a teacher try on in the course of his writing? He, tr- he tries to fill his mind with philosophy. He tries on wisdom. He tries to fill his body with hedonism. He tries on pleasure. He tries to fill his pockets with materialism. He tries on wealth and power. He tries to fill his conscience with ethics. He tries on humanity and brotherly love. And he tries to fill his spirit with religion. He tries to fit God into his understanding under the sun. And every single one of these things break down for him. He says wisdom or philosophy. He says to know is better than to be ignorant. That's true. He goes, I I, I test myself to know everything I can know. And I will tell you this. Being wise is better than being stupid. Granted, that's good. But... The more you know, the more you realize how much of a bummer this life is. Has anyone ever found that to be true? The more, anyone ever like WebMD'd anything and was like, <clears throat> I didn't want to know that. I have, I, have, I have cancer. Like everything is that. Like I have a headache. Oh, it's cancer. Like I have, and I'm a hypochondriac, so I WebMD everything and I go, Ash, this is the end. Like this is the end now. She's like, stop looking at those things. I'm like, I I think this is it. I think I'm the fifth one down. That's me. (laughs) And my time is limited here, so. Like, the more you know, it's like the worst it gets. And this is what he says. Like, the more you know about life, the more you learn that there's a, the, the, the more you read the news, the more you realize what a bummer life is. It's almost better to be ignorant than know everything. And even if you were smart enough to, like, do something great in life, Guess what? If you are super smart or super stupid, you will both end up in the same place. You will both die. Hevel, he says. Hevel. Yeah, be, be wise. That's great. You know, it's, it's, it's actually kind of better than being stupid. But know this. The more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. And then, ultimately, you and the dumb person end up in the same place, the grave. And who really knows? And he, he goes on and he says, animals go down, humans go up. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe animals and us are just the same thing. We just all both go to the ground. Who really knows? No one has come back to tell us. Who really knows Hevel? So he goes, you know what? I'm going to try pleasure, hedonism. And pleasure is very numbing and very fun and very pleasurable. But if you are looking for meaning, you will not find it in pleasure. You will find distraction in pleasure. You will find endorphins in pleasure. But you will not find real meaning in pleasure. He basically says the rich know this to be true, but the poor still believe in this lie. Hevel. 
He says, okay, what about work, wealth, and power? I'll do that. He finds that one of the worst things that can happen is that you build wealth and that you work for it and you build a legacy and then you die and you leave your inheritance to a stupid person who wastes it. This is what he says. It's like building a hotel empire and then leaving it to someone who wastes it. And it's like (laughs) vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. That's scary. That is so scary. We want things like, I'm going to build this thing, and then I'm going to leave it to someone just ridiculous. Hevel. That's Hevel. He, he's, he's wise enough to know if you do that, you're going to leave it to someone who's going to waste it. So he says the conclusion. Here's his conclusion. After he attempts wisdom, pleasure, and wealth. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says this. So I hated life. So I hated life life. Verse 22, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night, their minds do not rest. Does anyone know that to be true? Even at night, your mind doesn't rest. This, too, is meaningless. After two chapters of trying, after a lot of reading, observing, Women, men, wine, mills, work, politics, and probably war. This is his conclusion, Hevel. And then he offers wisdom. Now, I think we should listen to this. I think this is great. It's, this is actually good wisdom if you are living life under the sun, meaning you, you believe that God, if there is a God, distant God, or you might believe in Mother Nature or some spirit being in the universe that kind of wants to love everything or whatever, this might be good advice for you if you, don't, if you don't buy into the nearness of the risen Lord Jesus. If that's not you, then this might be actually really good advice for you. And this is his advice to us if you're living under the sun. He says, chapter 2, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Let me explain this to you, because at first it's tricky, because he uses the word God, the name God, so it's tricky. Let me me explain this to you. What he's basically saying is this. It's it's better to live your life like like Dory from Finding Nemo. Um, The new one is so good, by the way. It's better to live your life like Dory with short-term memory loss, to live in the moment, to just keep swimming, to not think too much about your future and not too much about your past. Live in the moment and enjoy your life. It's way better to do that. So whatever you eat, enjoy it. Whatever it is that you eat, enjoy it. That's what you have in the moment. So if you're vegan, enjoy that, you know, whatever. If you're like, I... I, you know, if you like to not eat, you like meat, just in, then enjoy. That's what you have. Enjoy it. Just take it in. Enjoy it. Whatever you drink, enjoy it. Whatever you, whatever way, and this is, this is the thing. Put that verse, oh, it's up there, sorry. Um, he says, whatever way you are toiling. Remember, the word toil means trying to find meaning in this life. He says, whatever way you are toiling, just enjoy the pursuit Find satisfaction in the hunt because you'll never catch anything. There is no meaning in life, so just enjoy trying to find the meaning. You will never find it. Just enjoy trying to find it. The point is this. 
you can't find meaning in this life because there is no real meaning in this life. You must make your own meaning. That will preach that. I could take that on the road. That will preach, right? Like, hey, there is no meaning. Find your own meaning. And you're like, yeah, I, I, gosh, if I just, if I took that anywhere in this country, it would preach. It is actually preaching now. Sadly, it is preaching from many pulpits as well. Find your own meaning. If, and I think this preaches to our modern sensibilities because we all believe deep down that there is no real meaning in this universe. And the only meaning is the meaning that we create. But the problem here is that this breeds serious anxiety. He says in chapter two, he calls it um, anxious striving. Because if you don't know why you are here and live with no real meaning, then the moment becomes the meaning. The moment that you're living in is all the meaning that you get. But then, if that is true, then your greatest fear is the fear of missing the moment. This is called FOMO. Most of you, the fear of missing out, most of you have really bad FOMO. And it's rooted, even if you're Christian, you, you do. It's rooted in this idea that life has no real meaning other than what you make of it. So if you're not making meaning out of every minute by doing the absolute best thing at that moment, you are missing out. And therefore, your life doesn't have meaning. Or at least it doesn't seem to have meaning in that moment. So if you're not having the absolute best time right now, you don't have any meaning. So you bounce between your life having a lot of meaning if you're having the best moment of your life. Like, oh my gosh, my life is so meaningful. I'm having so much fun. Or you have absolutely zero meaning because you're bored. You're bored. You're like, my life is horrible. I'm not living in the moment. And then you get on like social media and like, they're living in the moment. I'm not living in the moment. Have you accidentally, no, never mind. I won't get into that. Um, this breeds serious anxiety. Some of you right now are just like, your heart's beating really fast, you don't even know why. Because that's you. Like, if I'm not having the best time in my life right now, I can't be silent, I can't turn it off, I can't turn my phone off. Like, hey, try to turn your phone off for a day. What are you talking about? There's no way I might miss it. Or if I'm there, it might not count because I didn't take a picture of it. Like, it just, <laughs> and we live this way. I mean, this is so, it's, it's, it's funny because it's true, right? We live this way. What's great about Ecclesiastes is that at least it's honest. I wish that you would be more honest. I wish you'd go, I can't turn my phone off because I'm like, I'm so addicted to it. I find my life in it. This is my life. I can't turn it off. I can't turn off my email. I can't, I can't, because this is my life. I live for this thing. I wish you would just be honest. Ecclesiastes at least is honest. It's deeply despairing, but it's also deeply honest. With this view of life, living under the sun, Chapter 10, verse 19, is the mantra of your life. It's also deeply, this is also a, the, like the end goal of life. If you live under the sun, this is the end goal of life. If anyone read through this book, got to chapter 10, verse 19, did you highlight it? Don't lie, you probably did. This, if San Francisco had a Bible verse, this would be the Bible verse. Here it is. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Did anyone read that go, uh, life verse, this is it. I found it in the Bible. This is my life verse. I hope someone at least didn't know what the book was about and tweeted it and like, oh, hashtag life verse, this is it, guys, I found it. I hope that happened. I'd love to find it if it did happen. This, 
in all seriousness, it's actually pretty wise to cover up the truth about life under the sun with a million dis- diversions and distractions, like, like feasts and wine and money. Because the truth of our meaninglessness is the most terrible truth there is. It is despairing. It is depressing. If this sermon had a soundtrack, and oddly enough, most of my sermons do in my head at least, um, it would probably be that song off the 1975 album that came out earlier this year, um, If I Believe You. Uh, the, the writer of the song and the singer of the song, Maddie, he's an outspoken humanist. Even in the song, he referenced himself as an atheist. And this is how the song starts. He says, I've got a God-shaped hole that's infected. That is insane. Like any open wound that's ignored gets infected and more painful. He's like, I've ignored it for so long, it's infected. I've got a God-shaped hole that's infected and I'm petrified of being alone. It's pathetic, I know. And then he goes into the chorus. And if I believe you, will that make it stop? If I told you I need you, is that what you want? I'm broken and bleeding, I'm begging for help, and I'm asking you, Jesus, show yourself. I love honesty in songwriting. Then in the end of the song, he sings this like refrain over and over and over again, and it kind of just fades out as if it goes on forever, and he says, if I'm lost, then how can I find myself? If I'm lost, then how can I find myself? If I'm lost now, then how can I find myself over and over and over again? And this is the refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a fixed reference point, a point of reference that's stuck. It's life under the sun. It's life in the self. If I'm lost now, if I'm lost, we're all told, if you're lost, then look within yourself to find yourself. And he just calls BS on that. If you're lost, how can you find yourself? If I'm trying to find a meaning under the sun that's only found above the sun, how will I ever find it? If I'm trying to find myself, but I'm lost, then how great is my lostness? I'm stuck. The reference point keeps going over and over. It's buffering because it never, ever moves forward. And he says, I'm asking you, Jesus, show yourself. What he is asking for, he says, I need revelation. I need something from beyond me to save me. I can't save myself. I can only think I've saved myself if I convince myself that I'm not lost anymore. But we all know that's a lie. See, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book where God reveals to us exactly what life is like when there is no revelation. God lets us, for 12 chapters, be steeped into a world without revelation. That's, this is what makes this, why this book's in the canon. This is why this book is a revelation, because it reveals to us what life is like without a revelation. And what is it like? Meaningless, hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. What happened with that 1975 song is what philosopher James K.A. Smith calls cracks in the secular. It's when humanists, naturalists, or atheists doubt. But an atheist's doubt is faith. Think about that. 
Their doubt is faith in the transcendent, in the divine, in a personal God. Cracks in their secular worldview let the light in, and they're tempted by the light. This is what happens to the teacher, too. It's expected because this is what life under the sun is. There's a crack in his his worldview. There's a crack in, 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 in his thinking, and it happens to everyone, if we're honest. And he says it in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is the crack in his secular mindset. This verse is, comes right after the very famous verses about how there's a time for any, everything, a time to be born and a time to die, a time for war and a time for peace, a time for hate, a time for love. Like he does this time, 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 time thing. And then he says, and he's made everything beautiful in its time, but he also set eternity in the human heart. And this is the teacher's crack in the observable world. He says this, we experience only time yet we desire eternity. We experience time, but we want timelessness. Who taught us this strange thing called eternity? We hunger, and there is food. And we thirst, and there is water. And we desire, and there is love, and there is even sex. We long for eternity, and sometimes we say, well, there isn't one. Or is there one? St. Augustine, in his confession, said, my heart is restless until it found rest in you. It's that thing. The teacher shows us what and where the meaning of life is by showing us where it's not. That is why this book is in our Bibles. It's showing us that meaning is not found under the sun. Meaning is only found beyond the sun. See, it's not meaninglessness to eat. It keeps you alive. It's not meaninglessness to have sex. It keeps the human race alive and it brings pleasure. It's not meaninglessness to scratch a mosquito bite because it relieves the itching for a moment, but only for a moment. And then this is the rub. Short-term purpose is no compensation for long-term purposelessness. We just kind of do these small things like eat and have sex and scratch an itch, and that's all it does. It relieves it for a moment. Ecclesiastes is the first and necessary step toward salvation for the modern world. The world will not go to the great physician until it admits that it's desperately sick. And Ecclesiastes, if you're here, you wandered in, you don't believe in God, and you find yourself flirting with the idea of God, and that's why you came to church this morning, It starts with us taking this book seriously and admitting that we're desperately sick, that our God-shaped hole is infected, and we have to admit that. And so Peter Kreft concludes, he says this, the point of Ecclesiastes is simply this. Without God, no, not just without God. For the author of Ecclesiastes speaks frequently of God. Without faith in God, no, not even that. For, for the author has faith in God. In fact, the unquestioning faith, never does he doubt God's existence. Rather, without the kind of faith in God that is larger than life and therefore worth dying for and therefore worth living for, and without a faith that means trust and hope and love, without a life, without a life lived 
lived love affair with God, without a lived love affair with God, life is vanity of vanities, the shadow of a shadow, a dream within a dream. And unless there is a deep, abiding love affair connection with the living God, a relationship with God, not a distant God, not a God of a naturalist, not a God of maybe he's there, but an intimate relationship with the living God, nothing comes close to that. But maybe you've been told, you then must draw near to God, but actually, God continually draws near to us. The first mention of human brokenness is found in the, that we find in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, man and woman, hide themselves from each other, and then they hide from God. And what we see God doing is going after them to try to find them. God is looking for them. And we've been told the whole time, you have to look for God. No, what if God's looking for us? We're a a Christian church. Sorry if that's a surprise to you, but we're a Christian church. Um, Every week we gather to remember that in Christ, God came close to us. God came near to us. He came vulnerable as a baby and was made more vulnerable as he grew where he ultimately went to a cross to die for us. And this death by love is the wisdom of God, we're told. It's the beauty of God. It's the majesty of God. One New Testament writer, um, his name was Paul, the apostle. Um, He had it all at one time. A life full of worldly successes, education, wealth, power, prestige, privilege, religion, had it all. He says it was all crap. He actually uses a very vulgar word that I, I just won't use, but you know he's, he's like, it's all crap until he met Christ. With Christ, poverty is riches and weakness is power and suffering is joy and to be despised is glorious. But without Christ, riches are poverty and power is impotence and happiness is misery and glory is despised. Christ is that with the wisdom of God that we take in when God has come near to us, where we go, this is a very depressing reality that we live under. And it is a burden that God has placed under man if we think that. But when we see God, when we know that God has broken into our world, that God has come after us, that God has made his glory shine in the face of Christ, and when we see him, And when we begin a love relationship, a love affair with the living God, and then I I see everything because I see Christ. I see everything because I see Christ. That's That's the despair, but that's also the hope of this book. Let's pray. Lord, now as we as we turn to you, God, I I want to pray. Now for this this room to be filled with people with open hands, open hearts. I want to even ask you now if you are um, if you are willing, able, in an act of uh, physical prayer, would you open your hands to God? Just if they're on your lap or just there, just open your hands to God. This might be the the biggest movement that you've made toward God in your life. 
I want to pray right now for those in here, God, that there's a, a, just a crack in their worldview that lets light in, that lets the transcendent God in right now, and that their hands would be open to it, that their hearts would be open to it, taking in the light of the sun. I pray that you would make yourself near today, known today, by the power of your spirit, make yourself known today as we respond and sing and receive communion and pray and stand and repent and ask you to forgive and heal and set right and save us. All these things, I pray that you would be very near in our, even our experience, God. We don't, I'm just asking that you would do that um, on behalf of this church, that you would just be near us. We, we would know, we would know, just we would know I met with God today. God met with me today. You are near and you are present, Lord, and we believe that. Draw near to us as we respond to you, God, now. I pray for anyone who has not placed their trust or faith in you, Jesus. I pray they would open their lives to you, their hearts to you, their minds to you, and let you in. Receive you as their Lord, their Savior, their God. Receive you as the one who has come to set things right, and they would join in with that great kingdom initiative, that kingdom program. Now they're just so exhausted, anxious, worried about status and living in the moment and the pressure of this world just, we're not even, it doesn't even feel like, like life sometimes couldn't get better than it does, but we live with constant anxiety. Save us from that, Lord. Be real to us right now. Show us that all those pursuits, um, without like meaning from heaven, they just, it's hard to find the meaning. It's hard to have meaning. It's really depressing, Lord. Help us, God. Draw near to us now as we respond to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.